The rise of online news sources has left many to regard the local newspaper as a thing of the past. But today's guest describes how he and his family have kept Iowa's Storm Lake Times newspaper alive in the digital age. He's Art Cullen this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Art Cullen, a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial writer and editor at the Storm Lake Times, a newspaper in the small town of Storm Lake, Iowa. Art, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, we want to talk to you a little bit about the, the world of local news, but let's start a little bit with uh, telling our audience about Storm Lake, Iowa. Well, uh, Storm Lake is a, a rural farming and meatpacking community in northwest Iowa. Uh, it's three hours from anywhere. And <laughs> uh, it's uh, a heavily immigrant community because of meatpacking. About 90% of our uh, elementary school children are children of color, mainly uh, from someplace else, uh, primarily Mexico and Latin America. That sort of belies, I think, the, at least the, a lot of the, the coastal perception of rural Iowa. Uh, is, is this a recent demographic shift? Well, since about 1980, uh, when the state of Iowa invited the entire Thai Dom culture from Laos to basically move to Iowa from Thai refugee camps. And they did, and they established a beachhead in Storm Lake, uh, working at the IBP, now the Tyson uh, pork processing facility, uh, where we process about 15,000 hogs a day. Uh, and uh, about 300 Asian uh, refugees started working in the meatpacking plant. About 1990, a big wave of uh, Latinos came in from rural Mexico, Jalisco. And uh, we have people from Cuba, Myanmar, Sudan, uh, 27 languages are spoken in Storm Lake. Wow. So how were these immigrants received by residents of, of Storm Lake? I mean, this is a this is clearly a great cultural change and, and indeed an economic change. And maybe you can get into the economic changes, too. But how were they received? This is a, a quite a change. Well, uh, they've been received in waves. And uh, at first, when uh, Southeast Asian refugees came in, uh, there was some resentment because at the same time, uh, IBP busted the union at the meatpacking plant and these Asians were replacement workers uh, for a lot of union people. And uh, so unfortunately they were caught in that crossfire. And then a lot of uh, Anglos were asking, uh, weren't these the guys we were fighting in Vietnam? Well, no, in fact, they were the people who were fighting on our behalf. CIA operatives operating, operating in Cambodia and Laos. And <clears throat> so uh, eventually people got used to it. They're hardworking, patriotic people who uh, hosted Christmas 
dinner parties for Anglos with egg rolls and fried rice. <laughs> and, and we came to embrace the Asian refugees. And, uh, and then the Latinos came and originally they were, you know, at first they were young rural men from small uh, farming communities who, you know, got drunk at night and got in bar fights. And so then there was this wave of kind of anti-Latino uh, sentiment until uh, the federales came one day and raided our, our meatpacking plants and uh, penned up a bunch of Asians, African-Americans and Latinos uh, in the noonday sun. And the whole town was so revolted by it uh, that uh, we said, you know, no more of this. Uh, we all of a sudden came together around Latinos as well. And so that was 1996. And since then, uh, the, the police department does not stop or arrest people for being undocumented. Uh, and it's a, however, we are in the fourth congressional district of Northwest Iowa, we call it a little slice of Texas. And uh, our Congressman for 20 years was the xenophobic Steve King. So uh, there's that contrast uh, that exists in American culture and politics today. Are, is Storm Lake an outlier in rural Iowa, you know, agriculture and meatpacking communities in that respect in terms of its politics and its, its diversity, or is it pretty, is it pretty uh, emblematic? Uh, no, Storm Lake is an outlier uh, politically in rural Iowa. Rural Iowa is deep red Farm Bureau country. Uh, Farm Bureau would be the most important political institution in the state. And... Uh, uh, they control the state universities and uh, the education system, and, uh, along with the Koch brothers, uh, brother. And uh, uh, so it's a little dot of blue in a sea of red. Uh, and uh, it, it really is an anomaly. But there are these meatpacking communities that are scattered throughout the Midwest, Worthington, Minnesota, uh, Marshalltown, Iowa, uh, down in northern Missouri, there's a lot of uh, Latino enclaves, Dodge City, Kansas, Garden City, Kansas. Uh, there's these Latino enclaves uh, that are growing. And, uh, and that's really our future because the ang there's nothing to do for a college-educated Anglo to do in Garden City, Kansas or Worthington, Minnesota. And uh, so the Anglos get an education and leave and they're replaced by immigrants who are putting their boot on the first rung on the ladder to American success. It's the classic American success story. It used to be Eastern Europeans, now it's Latinos and Sudanese. So let's get into your great newspaper. You edit it, you co-own it with family members, uh, and you grew up in Storm Lake. What interested you in journalism in, in the first place, as a, as a young person, as a young man, what, what was the appeal of journalism growing up in, in Storm Lake? Well, they sent me off to school at the College of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where an all men's school where I intended to major in business. And because I never went to class, I flunked accounting. <laughs> and it was terribly boring. It was eight in the morning. And so I realized I wasn't gonna be a business major. So I got stoned one night in my dorm room and uh, looked through the college catalog. And I was interested in Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward from the Washington Post. 
and their harassment of Richard Nixon and, and uh, helping uh, you know, get rid of a, a crook and a liar. And, uh, and the only requirement in the journalism program was that you had to be able to type 25 words a minute, and I could. And so I majored in journalism and uh, I graduated from high school with a 2.6 grade average. And I graduated from college with a 2.6 grade average. Assistancy. So I was consistent. And that's why <laughs> I majored in journalism, honestly. And my brother, John, uh, had a job at a newspaper in a little town called Algona, Iowa, Northern Iowa, not too far from Storm Lake. And it's actually where our parents hail from. And he landed me a job when I could barely put a sentence together in Algona. So you started there, but uh, you told uh, you told NPR on Fresh Air um, that your goal was to join the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which, of course, uh, was an, and I guess still is a great newspaper. So but you didn't do that. You decided to come back and start a newspaper of your own. Tell us that story. How did that come to be? And, and why did you decide not to you mentioned not wanting to go into corporate journalism? Talk about the, the founding story, I guess, as it were. Well, uh, Minnesotans fail to appreciate the brilliance of Iowans, even though Minnesota was born from Iowa's loin uh, after we stole it from the Indians. Uh, and uh, so I never did get that job at the Star Tribune. I was a copy boy there in college, fetching coffee for editors. And, uh, uh, and then John landed me this job in Algona, Iowa, and then I went off and worked at uh, daily newspapers in Ames and Mason City, Iowa. And John started this newspaper in our hometown in 1990, and he needed an editor. He was overwhelmed with the work, and so I came home to help him. And we uh, launched the paper in 1990. And uh, first as a weekly, then we went daily for a year and lost our shorts. And uh, then returned to twice a week. Now we're about 3,000 circulation uh, in a county seat town of about 10 to 15,000. We're not sure how many people live here because so many are immigrants. And uh, we were fortunate enough to win a Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for editorial writing on, uh, on uh, agricultural pollution of surface waters in Iowa. Can, can you give us a little bit more of an overview of that Pulitzer Prize, which of course is a tremendous honor and, and congratulations a few years late, but congratulations. Well, thanks. Fun fact to know and tell, we were the smallest uh, newspaper to win a Pulitzer, I think, uh, maybe the second smallest, uh, Vacaville, California might've been smaller than us. Uh, but anyway, that's I, I wear that feather in my cap as the uh, country bumpkin editor who won a Pulitzer. And uh, uh, it was a series of 10 editorials we published in 2016 uh, regarding uh, a lawsuit by the Des Moines Water Works against three Northwest Iowa counties, including ours. And uh, we went and asked the Board of Supervisors, how are you gonna pay for the defense of this lawsuit since you have no insurance coverage for, a pol for pollution litigation? And they said, it's none of your business, we have friends. Uh, well, we found out who the friends were through our own reporting and challenged them to release their donor list uh, under the Iowa Public Records Law with the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. And, uh, 
raised such a stink that it won us a Pulitzer. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, it kind of changed, uh, changed my life. Certainly, I wouldn't be talking to you today, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never, you might have been, you never know. Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't uh, want to, I don't want to leave the details uh, on the cutting room floor, though. So who were their friends? Uh, well, it was, uh, of course, Monsanto, now Bayer, uh, but back then it was Monsanto and uh, Coke fertilizer out of Wichita, Kansas. Monsanto was headquartered in St. Louis. Uh, and the fertilizer industry and all, you know, Farm Bureau and all the, all the customary players. And the truth of it was that we, what we were able to reveal was that people in Wichita, Kansas and St. Louis, Missouri were calling the shots for the for our county board of supervisors who were defending themselves in this lawsuit. So it wasn't the electors of Buena Vista County who controlled our county anymore. It was the Koch brothers and Monsanto. They were calling the shots and the public deserved to know that. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. This week, we're talking about the importance of local journalism with Art Cullen, a 2017 Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial writer. He's also the editor of the Storm Lake Times, a newspaper in the community of Storm Lake, Iowa. You can follow the paper on Twitter at SL Times. So the paper you co-own and, and edit is very much a family operation. And let me just go through the list of family members. Your brother, John, is a publisher. You're the editor. Your wife, Dolores, photographs and writes. Your son, Tom, is a reporter. And your sister-in-law, Mary, writes a food column. Can you describe a typical day or, or even a typical week at your paper? How does it also, all come together? Also, also, Peach the News Hound guards our office. <laughs> four-year-old mutt. A four-year-old beautiful mutt, Peach. So we, <laughs> we don't want to forget her. Um, and uh, so, it, yeah, it's a family enterprise. And uh, we have five other people working there who aren't named Cullen. And, uh, and they're uh, tremendous hard workers, too. But we, you know, we started out as a couple brothers uh, with a love for our hometown, you know, and, and a love for journalism and uh, an appreciation of facts. And uh, we try and do it in a laid back atmosphere where, uh, where a dog can chew on a tennis ball. Is it the kind of operation where some, a citizen or resident of, of the city can just drop by and come into the newsroom and give you a tip or have coffee or whatever? I mean, that that's, kind of the image I have 
Well, lunch. yeah, sure. Anybody can walk in anytime. We won't offer them coffee because John doesn't like coffee, so we don't. <laughs> they can pet, they can pet the dog though, right? <laughs> yeah, they can pet the dog, and we'll offer him some lukewarm water. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, people walk in, and that's you know a difference between uh, what I define as metro journalism and community journalism is. Uh, we're a lot closer to our readers and our community than say the Minneapolis Star Tribune. No, no knock on uh, the Star Tribune. They're, they're doing a great job in a huge Metroplex. Here, uh, you, know. Uh, you know, Garrison Keeler uh, of uh, the Prairie Home Companion, his fictional editor, Harold Star of the Herald Star in Lake Wobegon, the motto on his newspaper was, we gotta live here too. <laughs> and uh, so that kind of sets up a different uh, different parameters for community journalism when somebody can walk into the office and grab you by the lapels. How does how do you think that changes the community? Uh, you know, we, we've, we've had other folks on the air talking about news deserts, uh, communities in America that are, are either unserved or underserved by uh, more regional uh, news outlets. What does a what does having a paper like Storm Lake Times mean for uh, the town of Storm Lake? Well, um, first of all, there have been academic studies done. Uh, the best I know of is from the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I got to plug them. John went to Notre Dame; he's a Domer, and uh, shows that uh, these news deserts. Uh, uh, government spending goes up, corruption tends to increase, crime rates are higher uh, because where there's a newspaper, uh, you know, we're providing a check on local government spending and taxation. We publish local property tax rates and, and what your levy is going to be. And we shame people in the paper for drunk driving and domestic assault and uh, all those sorts of things. It tends to, you know, make people behave. And, uh, and it's been you know, empirically studied and shown. And that's what happens when you lose local news. And in Storm Lake, we uh, you know, led the charge to dredge our lake, uh, which God made 26 feet deep. And uh, through agricultural practices, we managed to fill in. And uh, so it got down to seven feet deep. We, we engineered a $20 million campaign to dredge that lake. Uh, uh, and enlisted the help of the state and everybody from fishermen to bankers. Uh, we engineered a $40 million resort along the lake after dredging uh, to invite people in to see that Storm Lake was not a crime-ridden hotbed of Haitians, uh, as Trump would have us. Uh, but in fact, it's a welcoming community with a beautiful lake and a nice resort because the storm like times championed it were it not for the times i don't think those things would have happened frankly uh because we serve as a rallying point when it's necessary and a lot of people you know try to write us off as fdr liberals because we do run an fdr editorial page uh but uh but we're also a voice for Storm Lake in Des Moines and Washington. And that's very important. And I think our readers appreciate it. You hit on some of this, maybe you can get into this in a little more depth, but when, when an area, a region, a city, a town, <clears throat> excuse me, loses a local newspaper, what does democracy in general lose as well? 
Well, um, you know, the foundation of a functioning democracy is an informed electorate. If you don't know what your tax rates are, how can you vote on them? If you don't know uh, what that city council member stands for, how can you cast an intelligent vote and have a functioning democracy? And without a, a newspaper or a legitimate, credible news source that provides a common set of facts, the, the fabric of the, of the community deteriorates as those studies indicate, and as we both all know, uh, there is a direct relationship between the decline of newspaper readership that's been occurring my entire career uh, since say 1980. Uh, and it's been a steady decline. And there's also been a steady erosion of civic engagement. Uh, and it kind of culminated, and I'm not exaggerating, it culminated in that January 6th attack on the US Capitol, which had stage rehearsals both in Minnesota and Michigan, uh, both of places where these news deserts are spreading and where cult civic ignorance is rampant. And uh, because they're getting their information from some guy sitting in his underwear in Macedonia, posting Facebook messages uh, full of lies that are intended to destroy our democracy. And you know what, uh, journalists are the, the, the final wall that protects liberty. And you know, who did they go after first in Pakistan? The journalists. Who did go, Trump go after first? The journalists, called us enemies of the people. Uh, and well, I could go on a rant here and I'm about to, so I'll stop. Wow, that's, that is really powerful. What advice would you give to young people who may be interested in a journalism career, given the situation today in America? What, what would you tell, and I'm sure you have had these conversations with young people. And, and I would just follow up on that too, with, and, and particularly to young people who might be interested in doing what you did and starting a paper in a, in a news desert. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a it's a very strange time right now in local news, and there's a lot of really exciting things happening. You know, what for example, in San Francisco, a woman started a news service for Latinos and Mayan Native Mayan people who are living in Oakland, uh, where she directly texts them uh, the news, and then they interact, they text back to reporters to learn more. Uh, you know, really hyper-local person-to-person uh, journalism, uh, you know, and, and there's iterations of these things going on across the country because of the crisis in local journalism, because these news organizations are failing under assault from Facebook, Google, Craigslist, and assaulting our revenue base. So there's, the, in destru creative destruction, there, there, there lies opportunity. And unfortunately, I'm an old white guy uh, with white hair, and I have these legacy costs that involve newsprint and newspaper presses. And, um, but a kid can start up a digital thing like we did in 1990 using Macintosh computers and laying out all our pages on the screen, which was really innovation. Well, now I'm old and gray and full of sleep, and I'm not as innovative. But somebody 30 years younger than me has a great opportunity to do digital startups in these news deserts uh, with relatively little capital if they have a lot of sweat to invest. 
and I say, go for it. Um, we're trying now. What I'm trying to do is put on my young man knickers and reinvent the Stormlight Times digitally, and while maintaining our legacy publication, and that's very costly, and that's what's going to take philanthropy. We need help. Uh, we've set up something called the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, so people can give tax-deductible gifts to a nonprofit that supports independent family-owned newspapers in rural Iowa, about five family-owned newspapers, including La Prince of Iowa, which is a Latino publication. And it's gonna take philanthropy for us to, to build this digital infrastructure in rural areas to uh, fill up these news deserts and make them bloom again. Well, good luck with that work, that's so important. Well, I was curious, what are the principal barriers uh, when you talk about uh, the, the challenges to creating a, a digital uh, version of the Stormlake Times? Uh, what more than a website are you talking about? Well, uh, you know, audio, video, uh, texting, uh, Instagram, Facebook, you know, using all social media, uh, all, you know. I can lay down an ink stripe on a Harris V15 press, tell who laid the rail, but I don't give a damn about TikTok. And somebody has to, somebody has to give a damn about TikTok. And even if it is owned by the Chinese. Is, uh, is that a generational challenge? I mean, is, is it about bringing younger, yes. more innovative talent into the industry? Yes. And the problem is that, uh, you know, you got to have us old guys around uh who have institutional knowledge and who actually understand uh the economics of the business while bringing son tom along my son who's our general assignment reporter and his generation that does understand TikTok, and somehow we have to hand off the ball uh and that's really tough because there's no capital uh so and essentially, we're going to give the newspaper to the next generation in hopes that they it'll give them enough oxygen to uh, to make that transition. Right now, John and I are working for free on Social Security, and so we need to raise funds. There's been a tremendous loss of advertising revenue. Uh, newspapers used to. Uh, about 80% of their revenue was from display advertising. 80% of that was from classified advertising that Craigslist obliterated. So uh, we've got to replace that revenue somehow. Uh, in the long term, it's going to come from readers paying for information, paying for the news. Freedom is worth the price of a cup of coffee. Uh, but in the meantime, in, in say a five-year interim, uh, there's going to be another 300 news deserts if philanthropy doesn't step step in right now to save them. All right, this is a fascinating conversation. You're doing great work. We also want to note that you're also the previous author of Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience, and hope from a Heartland newspaper. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for the plug. That's all the time. You're welcome. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.